Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. This is just the basics. So I see a lot of practitioners that have been out for a little bit longer in the crowd. And so I've tried to really start at the basic level. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to raise your hand as we're going through. It can be interactive. It can be conversational. So what do I hear the most? As a, from a, a management lawyer perspective, the one thing that I am always hearing from a client is, well, we're employment at will in Nebraska. I can terminate anybody at any time for any reason, right? I don't really have to have uh, any reason. If they come in wearing the wrong color shirt, I can terminate them for that. And what I always say is, well, yeah, that's true. We are employment at will. And that's going to sort of, you want to start at the basic level. This is the most basic level employment at will. And what does it mean? It means that they're probably not on a contract. There's no definite duration for the time period. And if you guys want a copy of the slideshow that we're working off of, just shoot me an email and we could shoot it to you. Um, but it basically means that we can terminate you f at any time for any reason. But what I always say is that employment at will doctrine has been eroded in a lot of jurisdictions, including Nebraska, including looking at federal law. And how has it been eroded? Well, the for any reason, as it can't be based on someone's race. It can't be based on someone's sex. So there's been a lot of statutory laws that have been put in place that says, well, you can't terminate someone because they took FMLA. You can't terminate someone because they took workers' compensation. And a lot of these reasons that you can't terminate someone for have been put into statute. They've been codified by various legislatures. There's additional things like tort claims that might apply as well. So even if you have an employment at will situation, and let's say you even are out of the statutory time frame to file for an employment claim under one of these statutes, federal or state, you can still bring tort claims. And the normal tort claim statute of limitations would apply. And those tort claims are typically like defamation, invasion of privacy. We've had fraudulent inducement, breach of contract. I've even seen in Nebraska a breach of an implied contract, which there's a line of cases in Nebraska that says if you are an employee at will, you're still employed pursuant to an implied contract. And so if the employer doesn't follow certain procedures when they're terminating you, they might be breaching that contract. It's a stretch, but that line of cases is out there. Also, there's a public policy exception. And in Nebraska, there's a, a very narrow public policy exception to the employment at will uh, situation. And that's going to be basically if you ask an employee to do something that would, that in Nebraska would be considered a violation of public policy. Uh, one of the classic cases is someone was asked to turn back an odometer and they wouldn't do it, so their employer terminated them for that. They brought a case saying, well, you terminated me because it's against the law to turn back an odometer, and if you terminate me for, for refusing to violate the law, that should be something that I can't be terminated for refusing to do. So, some of the common public policy violations would be terminating someone for fulfilling a public obligation such, a, such as jury duty, for refusing to commit a crime, 
or for exercising a statutory right. The most classic case is work comp. And I've had a number of people say, well, look, when we're reviewing whether we're going to hire someone, I've even seen it on applications where it might say, have you ever filed a work comp claim in the past? And if they check yes, they go, well, we're not going to hire him or her because they have told us now that they've filed, filed, filed work comp claims in the past, and so we're not interested in this person because th they're just a work comp claim waiting to happen. You can't refuse to hire or terminate someone for filing a work comp claim. The other big one these days is whistleblowing. So if someone says that they are a whistleblower under a federal statute or a state statute, uh, whistleblowing I've even seen as something as broad as just reporting a violation of the law. That's an exception to the employment at will doctrine as well, saying you can't terminate someone for violating the public policy when they're reporting a violation of the law. Now, the exception to that is going to be if it's in their normal job duties to report that violation and you terminate them for something that is different and they say, well, look, you terminated me because I was reporting all these different violations of the law. And you say, well, that was your job. We didn't terminate you for that. Um, that's going to be a little exception to the exception. So that gets you through the employment at will doctrine, some exceptions to it. Moving along, employment litigation. How many have ever litigated an employment case before? Just so I kind of know. Okay. So the basics of a discrimination suit. When you sue someone, if you're on the plaintiff's side, or you're defending a lawsuit for discrimination, and that would be discrimination under Title VII, it's going to be discrimination under the ADEA, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, it's going to be discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act, Basically, if there's discrimination based on a protected characteristic under one of these federal or state laws, this is what, if you're the plaintiff, you have to show. So the first thing, it's, it's, it goes back to this case that the Supreme Court had called the McDonnell-Douglas case. And so Nebraska has said we follow the McDonnell-Douglas burden-shifting analysis whenever we're looking at unemployment discrimination case. And that this is, what the, this is the burden shifting, right? Only the Supreme Court can come up with something as fine as burden shifting. And so the rule on burden shifting is, first of all, the plaintiff has to make out what's called the prima facie case. So the plaintiff has to say, I'm part of a protected class. I'm African American. I'm over 40. I have a disability. Or I have a perceived disability. Once they show that, then they also have to show that they were qualified for the job or that they were performing the job satisfactorily. They can show that through performance evaluations. They can show that through praise for management, awards, a number of different ways. That's something from the defense side that we can take issue with. Like if they were terminated for attendance, we can say, well, look, they might have been performing their job well, but their attendance was terrible. And that's one of the criteria that we would expect them to uh, comply with for the job. And because their attendance was terrible, they weren't qualified or performing the job satisfactorily. The individual suffers some adverse employment action. They were terminated, they were demoted, they received dis some sort of discipline. But the key here is that it has to be an adverse employment action. So if you see a case on the plaintiff or defense side and someone receives discipline, but that discipline might not have resulted in a change in pay, it might not have resulted in a change in benefits, that's probably not going to be an adverse employment action. And we've actually moved to dismiss cases on the fact that, look, this is still a current employee. They've suffered no decrease in pay, no decrease in benefits. 
And so there's no adverse employment action that's actually been taken that has uh, affected their employment. Now that, yeah. So, so a decrease in responsibility in duties isn't an adverse employment action? It could be. A decrease in duties could be. A less desirable shift could be. I know one of the seminal Eighth, case, eighth Circuit cases on this is Schwann's. Um, and in there, you, know, you have the Schwann's delivery people that drive around and they, they're going to sell you what you need to be sold for the frozen. I don't do Schwann's, but I hear it's good. Um, and in the Schwann's case, they, the plaintiff alleged that they were discriminated against and that the adverse employment action that they received was a less desirable route. And Schwann's defended and said, well, look, we didn't decrease the pay, we didn't decrease the, the benefits. And so, obviously, there's no adverse employment action here. And the Eighth Circuit said, well, a less desirable shift, such as moving someone from the day to the night, or moving them to a different job, like you move someone maybe to a, a janitor from a sales job, that could be seen as an adverse employment action. And so, it's important to really get all the facts and say, okay, well, is there sort of a difference here that would be seen as an adverse employment action? The fourth element of most prima facie cases is that someone outside the protect was, protected class was treated more favorable, favorably. So if you have someone that's you know, 50 years old and they were disciplined for violating an attendance policy, then typically what they're going to have to show is that there were people that were under 50 that did the same thing that they did and they weren't disciplined for it, whether it's violating the attendance policy, whether it's whatever action that they took. So once the plaintiff shows all of the elements of the prima facie case. Then the burden shifts, and it shifts to the employer. And what the employer then has to show is that they had a legitimate, non-discriminatory or non-retaliatory reason for their employment action, or the adverse employment action. And that could be where you, that's where you set out, why did we take the action we took? And that could be set out in discipline, it could be set out in emails, but that's where the documentation is really going to come in handy for you to say, hey, look, we have all this documentation to show that this is why we took the action that we took. Once you as the employer show an adverse employment action uh, or a legitimate non-discriminatory reason, then the burden shifts back to that plaintiff. And that plaintiff has to show you're lying, basically. And it's, it's a fancy word called pretext. But it basically means that you as the employer are lying. And that even though you say that it was because I had 18 absences in a three-month period of time, it's actually because I'm over 40 years of age. And a way that they can show pretext would be shifting reason. Uh, well, you were terminated because of your attendance, and then you send them a termi termination later letter saying, well, you're actually terminated for performance. And then later at the unemployment hearing, you say, well, they were actually terminated because they were insubordinate. And that's going to be a really great way for that employee or former employee to show that you're lying because your explanation as to why they were terminated is constantly shifting. And at any one of these stages, you can, if you're the employer, ask for summary judgment. So you can say, well, they can't show all the elements, or they can show all the elements, but we have articulated a legitimate non-discriminatory reason and they can't prove pretext. And all you have to do if you've made motions for summary judgment before, if you're the employee, a former employee, is kind of throw enough up against the wall and see if it sticks. Uh, I've seen people do this from the plaintiff's side, even if it's just 
you take a great deposition of the plaintiff and you think you have your, your case all wrapped up for summary judgment. And then if you're the plaintiff's attorney, I've seen some plaintiff's attorneys just go, okay, that's great, I'm done. Whereas the plaintiff's attorney, I think, has a very good opportunity to kind of show and create a disputed issue of fact just by questioning their own witness. And I've seen that very effectively done. You, you can do it through leading questions. You can go out and take a quick break and talk to your plaintiff and figure out, okay, what do we need to correct to make sure that there's a disputed issue of fact. So, but I see a lot of plaintiff's attorneys that miss that opportunity because after we get done with our questions, they just say, okay, deposition's done. And then you might get a long affidavit in response to your summary judgment motion, but self-serving affidavits are not really taken as good evidence by the court. It's better to have deposition testimony that might create that issue of fact. This is all for indirect evidence. If you have direct evidence of some sort of age discrimination or harassment, that's gonna not that's gonna take you out of the burden shifting analysis. That's just gonna be direct evidence. So direct evidence, I mean, we've seen cases where you might have an email that says, well, we're gonna terminate this person because of their age, or we're gonna get rid of, we need a more youthful workforce, and so we're gonna get rid of everybody that's under 50, or we're gonna offer them severance packages or retirement packages or things like that. That's gonna be direct evidence, and that direct evidence will take you out of that McDonnell-Douglas burden shifting analysis. So, you know, in this day and age, I've seen a lot of texts, a lot of texts after hours, a lot of texts probably after people have been at the bar where they're talking about someone or they're talking about terminating a group of people. And that's when you get that direct evidence that you just go, well, I sure wish that didn't exist, but you're gonna have to produce it. So if it's a text message like that, I mean, is there any kind of, kind of like scope of employment argument that can be raised? You know, I, I wasn't at work, so just kind of. If it's a manager or supervisor that's sending the text message, it's usually gonna come in and I think a court would be hard pressed to not deny summary judgment for the employer uh, based upon that. I think they're gonna be able to show that there's enough direct evidence through that text message even if it was after hours because as a supervisor or manager, you really never take off that supervisor manager hat. And in that situation, I wouldn't even be surprised if the plaintiff names that supervisor or manager individually, even if it was an after hours text or Facebook post or something like that you can show that that could be direct evidence of discrimination toward that plaintiff. So what's at stake? If you're a plaintiff, what can you recover? If you're a defendant, what might you have a jury award? So there's back pay. So if someone's terminated on January 1st, 2014, and you go to trial on January 1st, 2017, you're gonna be looking at three years of back pay. So whatever they were earning, there's that component to damages. So if they were earning $50,000 a year, they're gonna be asking for $150,000 in back pay. They're gonna ask for front pay. And the Eighth Circuit, two years is kind of the rule of thumb, but I've seen cases that affirm anything up to five or even seven years. Seven years is kind of a long shot, but two to five years. Yeah, Megan? With the back pay, could they show that they had been getting substantial raises throughout and get more money that way? Like, normally I get a 2% cost of living raise every year and then have that be their added to their back pay or is it based on what their pay was at termination? I've seen people try to do that. Mm -hmm. That's difficult to show because it's all speculative. And if you can show this just 
a straight across the board merit increase or if you're working under a collective bargaining agreement where you show each year that you're a union member and each year you're going to be your pay is going to be increased pursuant to this schedule that's attached to a collective bargaining agreement then it's going to be easier to show if it's just in the discretion of the employer that you would be getting raises that's going to be a lot more difficult to show so but you could try sure give it a shot say yeah i've always received five thousand dollar increases and my performance still would have been good so so front pay you, you could take it out another uh two to five years usually yeah, I haven't gotten to mitigation, but we'll, we'll talk mitigation since sure. Nick decided that he was going to bring it up. Um, but yeah, so the, the plaintiff does have an obligation to mitigate their damages. And what mitigate means is they have to go out and look for work. And if they don't, if they just sit on their butts and do nothing, then you can show that they failed to mitigate and that that back pay should be decreased by whatever amount or some amount that you claim they should have made by seeking and getting another job. And so most plaintiff's attorneys, if they're savvy, are going to tell their person when they come in, keep a list of the jobs you've applied for, keep a list of, uh, or keep the, the applications that you've submitted. If you sent emails, keep those emails to show that you're actively looking for work. The best case scenario, if you're on the defense side, is going to be if you have a solid liability case and the person that is terminated was making $50,000 a year and they go out and get another job that they make $50,000 or more a year, because all of a sudden, you're going to be able to make a pretty compelling argument, well, you have no damages. So it's a great case for liability, but back pay, front pay is going to be out. And that's what plaintiff's attorneys really rely on, is that portion of the damages to continue to accrue. Uh, mitigation is something that I don't see a lot of defense attorneys ask for summary judgment on. But if you think that you've been able, and, and as a defense lawyer, that should be in all of your affirmative defenses. Whenever you answer a complaint, you should always include failure to mitigate. No matter what you know at the time, you should always include failure to mitigate. That's your burden of proof as a defense attorney. And so if you go into a deposition, you should be going in there and questioning that plaintiff on what have they done to look for work. You should be including interrogatories that say what have you done for, to look for work? What has your income been since you left employment, since your employment ended? You should be asking for documents regarding what have they done since their employment ended uh, because that will go to help you. And if they say, I haven't, had any, I haven't done anything, and I've had a lot of people say, well, you know what, I, was, I actually was so depressed, I just was hopped up on marijuana and drugs for the, for the next two years, and so I didn't have a chance to look for work. And so you say, okay, and even if you had applied for a job, you might not have gotten it if they did drug testing, right? And so then you can ask the court for a summary judgment on your mitigation or failure to mitigate defense and you I haven't seen a, a court yet grant summary judgment on the affirmative defense but I think it's still worthwhile to make to at least brief the judge on the issue before you go to trial compensatory damages that's sort of wishy-washy right it's everything from medical emotional distress which is the big question mark especially if you don't have any actual documentation of what their emotional distress was punitive damages under Title VII, there is a cap on back pay and front, or on a compensatory damages, and that's $300,000 and down, depending on how many employees the defendant company has. Attorney's fees is sort of the tail that wags the dog in these cases. Um, in each of the standard, uh, aside from the Nebraska public policy cases, 
most of the statutes include an attorney's fee clause that says if the plaintiff wins, the plaintiff gets their attorney's fees. If the defense wins, you get a big pat on the back and say, great job, you didn't discriminate. And a lot of companies really look at that and go, okay, if it's gonna cost us $100,000 to go to trial in this case, and there's risk here that we might lose, and the risk is then we have to pay another $100,000 or $100,000 to the plaintiff's to the plaintiff for their attorney's fees, is it worth it to settle the case for $25,000? And so it's really sort of a, a cost of the defense analysis, which sucks, but for you plaintiff's attorneys out there, that's something that you got going for you. Um, reinstatement uh, is something that the Eighth Circuit does like, um, and I haven't seen the plaintiff yet that has actually said I want to be reinstated to that environment that I'm saying was discriminatory or harassing or something like that, but it's out there. Um, reputation, and then of course the intangibles, right? The money that it takes, the time that it takes, the stress on your supervisors, et cetera. So if, if I'm a plaintiff's attorney, what am I gonna do? If I, get a, if I have a, someone that walks in the door, what am I gonna do? First thing I'm gonna do is say, okay, well, what are the administrative pre prerequisites that I need to do before I can file the case? Because for most of the standard discrimination, harassment, retaliation claims, you have to exhaust your administrative remedies, which means you have to file with the EEOC or the Nebraska Equal Opportunities Commission and give them the opportunity to vet the case. And then once they shut it down and say reasonable cause or no reasonable cause, at that point, you've exhausted your administrative remedies and you can then file a lawsuit. There's certain statutes that you don't have to exhaust, like FMLA, you don't have to exhaust, and the NEOC and the EEOC really don't have jurisdiction over those types of claims anyway. But you don't want to be in a situation where you just go file a lawsuit and then I move to dismiss your case because you didn't exhaust your administrative remedies. The statute of limitations under most of the federal and state statutes is going to be 300 days. Um, so you have 300 days from the date of the last adverse employment action to file. And once that 300 days is out, then you're out of luck unless you can get crafty and somehow bring yourself either in the 300-day window or say, well, there's one of these other tort claims that might have a longer limitations period. Is that 300 days from the act or 300 days from the decline? The no, 300 days from the act. From the act. Yeah, and then once you receive your administrative dismissal from the NEOC or the EEOC, you have 90 days to file. And a lot of times what happens, if you've dealt with these before, is the NEOC and the EEOC, you file a case and they both get it. And the, NEOC, the EEOC will defer to the NEOC unless it's a uh, same-sex discrimination case because in Nebraska we don't have same-sex discrimination, but the EEOC says under federal law we do. Um, and Nebraska will kick it to the, the feds. But otherwise, the NEOC usually investigates it, issues its determination, which I think the statistics are like 90% or more of the cases filed before the NEOC are dismissed with a finding of no discrimination, no harassment, no retaliation. And then you have 90 days to file on your state law claims. The EEOC will then issue a dismissal adopting the NEOC's findings, and you have 90 days to file from the EEOC's dismissal. Now, if there's uh, a time period in there where the 90 days on the state claims expire and the 90 days for your federal claims is still open uh, and you wait until the 90 days on the state law claims expires, uh, then you can't bring your state law claims. You can only bring your federal law claims. So make sure that you know where those 
limitations periods apply. We could really spend a whole lot of time on that, but we're going to keep going. Unemployment. If you're a plaintiff's attorney and you, a case walks in the door, you want to know where they're at. Have they filed for unemployment? Do they intend to file for unemployment? If they do file for unemployment, we'll get into that a little bit later. Why is it important for you to chase that down? Damages mitigation efforts. Again, we talked about the importance of your plaintiff mitigating their damages. You want to say, are you looking for work? If you haven't looked for work, let's get out there and start looking for work. Where are we at? Okay, this is important from three different perspectives. Jurisdiction, right? If I'm a defense lawyer, I'm looking for every opportunity I can to get you into federal court every single time because federal court's a much better jurisdiction for me than Douglas County or Sarpy County. Uh, the judges in federal court are more defense. They tend to be more employer-oriented. Summary judgment is granted more frequently. How many times have you guys seen summary judgment granted by your Douglas County judges? Not a lot, right? And so if you're an employment defense attorney, the golden goose is going to be to get summary judgment on a claim and avoid trial. Uh, so where do you need to file if you're that plaintiff's attorney? Is there a way for you to avoid the removal to federal court? How do you avoid removal? Do I want to tell you? No, <laughs> but I will. Okay, since this is just the basics, you add an individual defendant because that's going to destroy federal uh, diversity jurisdiction. And if you, the, the other way is to make sure that you have only state law claims in there because otherwise if there's a federal claim that you bring, I can still remove it based on federal question jurisdiction. So if it's only state law claims and you add an individual defendant, unless I can show that the individual defendant was fraudulently added just for the sake of avoiding removal, I'm going to be stuck in state court, which I don't like at all. And so if you're a plaintiff's attorney, look at that. Venue, where do you need to file? The big one that I've seen is if you're over in Iowa, you know that sort of the, the you know, the common place that you want to file if you're over in Iowa is Polk County, which is where Des Moines is at. You're going to get a great jury, uh, but there's some places in Des Moines that, and specifically West Des Moines, that are actually outside of Polk County, but I've had a bunch of plaintiff's attorneys that don't know that, so they file in Polk <laughs> County, you figure out where the county line is, and you remove it, and you end up in Adele, Iowa, and they're going, well, I don't want a bunch of farmers on my jury because that's not the, the jury that I want if I'm a plaintiff. And so, um, so yeah, so look at that at venue from both sides. And employment, are they still an employee? And this is really important because if, if your plaintiff that walks in your door is still an employee, you wanna know that so that you can either, uh, you can figure out what you wanna do from that, but it's really important to know, are they still employed? And then documents, can they get a copy of their personnel file? In Nebraska, if you're on the defense side and you get it, I mean, I've had a number of people that say, hey, look, do we have to give our former employees a copy of their personnel file? Or we did give our copy of, of the personnel file to our former employee. I always say, why would you do that? In Nebraska, you don't have to. In Iowa, you don't have to. If it's a former employee, I say you never give them anything that they want. Because if they want it, we probably don't want them to have it. <laughs> so um, maybe you do, but most of the time I would say don't. From the defense side, there's a little bit more. Insurance. And this is a malpractice issue, so we could get like a point one of ethics here. Um, insurance is a common way that I've seen for people that have long-standing corporate clients that walk in the door with an employment case, and then they 
it, it, they might have filed it with the EEOC, they defend it, and then all of a sudden a, a larger case is filed and nobody thought, do they have employment practices liability insurance, EPLI coverage? And you go, uh-oh, well, they might deny coverage if they find that there was a claim made back in April of 2016 and we didn't tender it until May of 2017. Uh, the other thing is you want that deductible to continue running from the beginning. You want to make sure insurance is involved. So check if there's insurance when that case first walks in the door from the defense perspective. Is there an arbitration agreement? The other thing that you can't fix is if you file an answer and you start defending the case and you get the personnel file three months down the road and all of a sudden you realize, oops, there's an arbitration agreement in the personnel file. And then you try and stay and file to, to uh, try and get the case kicked to arbitration. And in most circumstances, our federal court and state court are going to kick it to arbitration every single time with an employment agreement. And plaintiff's attorneys hate arbitration agreements. And it devalues their case. And I've seen plaintiff's attorneys walk away from cases that for next to nothing because all of a sudden they don't get the audience that they want. They get an arbitrator. Check that. Has there been an administrative claim filed? If not, do you have that defense? Is there an offer of reinstatement that you want to make? And this is, I think, from a defense perspective, an underutilized mechanism. There's, there's a case called, it's the Ford Motor Company case. So you have what's called a Ford Motor Company offer of reinstatement. And so let's say I get a case in the door and it's terrible. You look at this and you go, wow, we really screwed up here, okay? And we terminated the person. One way that you can cut off damages it, from a back pay, front pay perspective is to do an unconditional offer of reinstatement. You can send an offer from the company to that plaintiff or that individual and say, come back to work, we'll reemploy you, same rate of pay, same benefits, no loss of seniority, and you can come back to work. You, you, you can't give them a new drug test, you can't give them a new background check, but we're going to bring you back. And you set out a time period, I usually said 15 days, and if they decline that, then what's nice is you have this little affirmative defense in your back pocket that says, well, we were able to cut off your damages as of that date because we told you you could come back to work and you failed to mitigate by coming back to work. So think about that, and, and I've had some clients go, hell no, we do not want to bring that person back. And I've had plaintiff's attorneys that try and def defend that on the basis that, look, this was such a horrible environment, why on earth would this person ever want to go back to that environment? But at least if you're a defense attorney, you have that in your back pocket as an option. So it's a box you can check, do we want to do that? Offer of judgment, again, underutilized tool. You know, if they're claiming that they would have retired in two years anyway, do you want to make an some sort of offer of judgment early in the case? Because there are some, in the Rule 68, Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, that's what gives you the right to an offer of judgment, right? And it says that if you offer 50 grand and the plaintiff goes to a jury and they get less than 50 grand, then you get, as a defendant, you get, or the person that made the offer, you get your costs. And costs in some employment statutes are defined to include attorney's fees. And so you might be able to make an argument that if they don't recover whatever the amount of your offer of judgment was, then you can make your own motion for attorney's fees based upon the fact that they didn't accept your offer of judgment. So think about that. Is it full attorney's fees or the difference between the offer and the actual judgment? Usually it would be attorney's fees from the date of the offer forward. Yeah. 
joint representation. And this is another, we'll get point two of ethics today. Um, if you have an individually named defendant, so they name Wentz Company and Dave Summers, because he's the guy that was discriminating, right? And so if they name both of us, and you're a defense attorney, and you're defending, you say, you know, your interests are aligned, so I am going to represent both of you. You want to have a joint representation agreement in place, because at some point, if the company discovers that Dave actually was discriminating, maybe a conflict of interest arises, and you need to get out of representing Dave, and you want to make sure you have a joint representation agreement in place that says you can do that. So always have a joint representation agreement in place if you're going to be representing an individual and the company. And this would be too true for charges and for lawsuits. Dismissal. Can you do a motion, early motion to dismiss? I usually like to do early motions to dismiss if I can get rid of one claim completely or all the claims completely. Otherwise, I might not do it because it, I don't know, it just wisens the, I mean, let, let's say that they have 300 days to file an administrative charge, right? And they file on day, they file a lawsuit on day 200. And then you say, oh, they didn't, they didn't exhaust their administrative remedies and you do a motion to dismiss, what are they going to do? File an administrative charge and then you don't have that affirmative defense anymore because they've remedied that. If you wait and then all of a sudden you do it on day 350 when they can't file an administrative charge, then you might be able to get the whole thing kicked out because they failed to exhaust their administrative remedies and that's something that they can't amend or they can't do. Removal, we've kind of discussed on this. If you are a defense attorney, always consider removal. And then settlement. If it's really bad, is this something that you just want to get rid of fast? And you don't think you have to say certain things in this day and age, but we had a case come in and the company actually hired a stripper for some lady's 60th birthday. And this, so this male stripper comes in and the company actually paid for it and there were people from the C-suite at this party that the stripper was there and it was like a three o'clock party, right? It's like, we're here and all of a sudden a stripper comes in. And, uh, and you go, do you really have to say, don't hire a stripper using company money? And apparently you do. Um, but that's when you go, do we really want the EEOC to look into this? Do we really want the NEOC to look into this? Do we really want this to go to court? Probably not. This might be a quick settlement because the company just messed up, you know? And, and sometimes that happens. <laughs> it was not Big Red Kino. Uh, both sides. Both sides, what you want to do when you first get a hint of litigation, preserve documents and preserve electronically stored information. This is right, the big scary elephant in the room for all attorneys right now. And we're seeing, especially on the federal bench, a lot of our own magistrates in Nebraska taking a really hard look. And they've said they expect that when you're having that Rule 26 early conference, that you're going to be discussing who the custodians are, what mechanisms you put in place to make sure that those documents are being preserved and not destroyed. And it's starting, I've seen some decisions where it's even starting to fall back on the attorneys and saying, well, yeah, the client didn't preserve it. And you go, yeah, but you have an ethical obligation as an attorney to make sure that you're doing what's necessary to preserve that information as well. So that's from like the beginning when they tell you they've got a problem, that's when you should be talking Usually about we do litigation holds based on the, when we get a demand letter, a charge, of a, an actual claim. 
that's made. If we get a, even a demand for the employee file, that's sort of borderline um, because there's no claim that's made. But usually once a claim's made, um, even if it's just in the demand phase, usually that's when, I mean, I don't want to take any chances, so that's when I'll just say, yeah, we're going to get out our preservation right away. So if you, as a lawyer, what should you be doing? I mean, we have our own standard preservation letter that we send out with a memo to the IT department. We list out the custodians of records. Um, we do that. There's a number of our clients that actually have their own internal processes, and they go, we don't want your Jackson Lewis stuff. We actually have our own better stuff. Um, but at least we have something in place that, that you can send out and say, we put our client on notice that they should be doing this stuff. And so it's sort of a CYA, but it's also something where you don't want to be in front of Magistrate Judge Swart going, I didn't know that they had this server, and I didn't know who the custodians were, and Magistrate Z Judge Swart's going to go, well, you didn't have that conversation right away. And if you say no, that's not going to make her too happy. So employers, um, so I, because Dave put in here that I was going to be put, talking to you guys about employers as, or lawyers as employers, um, I thought I needed to live up to the outline, at least a piece of it. So this is, from a law firm management perspective, some of the big pitfalls that I see lawyers as employers not doing. Um, you might say, well, I have a small office, so there's no way the claim can be made against me because most of the federal statutes say that you have to have 15 or more employers or employees. Well, under the Omaha Human Rights and Relations Department, the Omaha statutes tend to apply to five or more employees, and the NEOC, I think, is 15 or more employees. So you, and then you can get there through any employee. I mean, you can have paralegals, secretaries, assistants, lawyers. PTO vacation, you guys probably all know this, but if you don't, for PTO or vacation, when there's an end of employment, whether it's resignation or termination, you have to pay out the accrued but unused PTO and vacation. If you're not doing it, if you hear that one of your clients isn't doing it, you can step in and be the, the knight on the white horse and say, you need to do it, and uh, save your client or your law firm from a class action. And Have you ever run into a situation where there is no policy? I mean, if there's no this is how much PTO you have, you just take it when you need it. Is there anything to pay out? Well, that's a good question. I haven't, actually haven't seen that before. I've seen that as a solution to that problem. That's, that's creative. It's just sort of a, you, we don't give you a set amount. Right. So you have no set amount to pay out? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. You could try it. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen that. So yeah, I think that's creative. Yeah. Classifying employees. Most law firms, especially from the small variety, I know I clerked for one, um, they had their assistants, they had their secretaries on salary, they had their paralegals on salary. If you're doing that, you're probably misclassifying them. They should be hourly, okay? Um, I know most secretaries or paralegals, I know they look at it and they look at it as prestige, right? I'm a salary employee. You go, well, it has nothing to do with prestige. It has to do with what the IRS and the DOL say that we have to do. So if you have your secretaries or your paralegals getting a salary, you should probably fix that. Employment contracts, there's a bunch of different ways you can do employment contracts. I'm not a huge fan of employment contracts because it sort of creates an expectation and it's an exception to the at will. Uh, what I will do if I'm writing an employment contract, unless the client actually says, I want it for a set period of time, I'll just say, 
here's your contract and you're still an employee at will, but here's the terms that are going to apply to your employment. So you can still preserve that employment at will, but then just set out some terms that are going to apply. Handbooks policies, I've had large clients even that say we don't need one. We don't want something that the employees can use against us, but it's also, I look at it like it's more of a shield so that if you go before the NEOC or you go before the EEOC or there's a claim made, you can fall back on your policy. And um, Nebraska, you can have a pretty basic handbook that just complies with Nebraska and federal law that's not going to be that onerous, but it's going to give you a defense mechanism if a claim's filed against your law firm. And performance evaluations. Um, do them. I would say um, it's really tough to get in a position where you might have an assistant or a paralegal that's been underperforming for three or four years, and if you're like most lawyers, you don't have the time to do them, and then all of a sudden they just screw up so badly and you go, that's it, I can't take it anymore, you've been underperforming for three years, you're out of here, and that's what happens with clients as well, and you go, okay, if you have candid performance evaluations to back up how that employee is performing, then they can't ever say it was a surprise. There you go. Any questions on law firm management? Okay. Check that box, Dave. Unemployment 101. I call unemployment eggs or waffles. And the reason is because, how many have participated in unemployment hearings before? Do you know what? Okay. So unemployment is if someone's terminated or they quit, they can apply to the state to receive unemployment. Okay, which is basically a set payment based upon how much they were making, and there's this big calculation. And you can, as an employer, you can contest the employee's application for unemployment. And then they make an initial finding, and then either side that loses can appeal it, and then at some point it goes to an administrative law judge. And you can have a telephonic or in-person hearing. And I call it eggs or waffles because, based on what I've seen, the outcome is going to depend on whether the... ALJ had eggs or waffles for breakfast in the morning <laughs> because there's really no consistency across the board as to how they apply these laws. Um, so basic, your basic unemployment, if you voluntarily leave work, that's going to be a disqualifying factor. And if you're an employer, you can contest unemployment and you'll probably win. Uh, if you leave because of certain work conditions or certain conduct of em employer, supervisor, or coworkers, if you can show there was discrimination or severe harassment or something like that, that may still get you into the unemployment benefits being granted. Transportation, you say, I don't have any transportation to get to work anymore. The Nebraska Unemployment Appeals Board might actually take pity on you and give you unemployment. Or if you leave for other employment, that's probably always going to be a disqualifier. Willful misconduct. You're going to also be disqualified if you voluntarily quit or you engage in willful misconduct. And this is where the eggs or waffles come in, because all these things are pretty subjective. I've seen someone that has had terrible attendance that has been granted unemployment. I've seen someone that has had terrible attendance being denied unemployment. A lot of times, what it comes down to is what kind of documents and documentation you've done as the employer to show, okay, we continuously warned this person on the second, third, fourth, fifth absence that they're subject to termination. That's usually what's going to help you out. Risks. A lot of you, if you have a client that says, well, Ken Wentz, I have this, this former employee, Ken Wentz, and he filed for unemployment. Um, we've contested it. There's no way he should get an un unemployment. And we want you to go forward with this unemployment appeals hearing. Well, the things to keep in mind are 
from a plaintiff or a defense perspective, your client is gonna be testifying under oath at this hearing. They're sworn in, it's recorded, and a lot of times if I'm representing an employer at one of these hearings, I'll show up because the, the, the complainant or the, the, the person applying for benefits, the applicant, doesn't have an attorney. And so I'll just say, hey, and you don't think you, that there was any other reason why you were fired other than your attendance, right? And they'll go, no, I don't. And then when later they say, you know, I think I was fired because of my race, you can go, well, actually, under oath, you previously testified that you weren't. So, you know, which one is it? And if you're on the flip side, a lot of times employers also don't have a lawyer here. And I've seen individuals that show up with a lawyer, and that lawyer uses this as a great free discovery tool and is talking to the witnesses that appear for the company, and they can start saying, well, were they fired for insubordination? Yes. Were they fired for attendance? Yes. Okay, and then you get all these reasons that don't line up with the reason that the employer gave the first time around, and all of a sudden you might be running into the pretext stuff, the lies. So, the, and the other risk is always, if you're the employer and you contest it, I've seen empl all employers have a different mentality. I've seen some employers go, we can test everything, and I've seen some employers go, we can test nothing. But usually, if you have a plaintiff that's about ready to file a lawsuit, but they're going, you know what, I'm gonna get unemployment, so it's cool, I might not file anything, and then all of a sudden you show up, you contest employment, unemployment, and that is, unemployment's denied, that might push that individual over the edge to go see a lawyer, to go ahead and file, where they might not have otherwise done any of that before. So I always think it's, it's not, it shouldn't be a knee jerk. We, we always contest, or we never contest. It should be something that you calculate. Restrictive covenants in Nebraska. So these are the basic types of restrictive covenants mm -hmm. just in general. Um, how many of you have dealt with non-competes or non-solicitations? A lot of people. Okay. So in Nebraska, you guys probably already know that there's a bunch of different types of restrictive covenants, right? The non-compete basically says you can't go to work for a competitor for a certain amount of time after your employment ends in a certain geographic restriction. A non-solicitation says you can go to work for that competitor, but you just can't service the customers that you serviced while you were here. Non-solicitation uh, can also apply to employees, and it's kind of also on the non-recruitment side. And says you can't, you can go to work for a competitor, you just can't recruit our employees or solicit our employees to work with you. Non-disclosure, bare minimum, any employer should have a non-disclosure that's gonna protect their confidential trade secret information. And then non-disparagement, which is I haven't seen that used a whole lot, but I thought I'd throw it in there. So in Nebraska, you can't have a non-compete. So if you have a client and they ha give you an agreement and it has a non-compete in it, that's gonna be invalid in Nebraska. The only thing that you can do in Nebraska is right here, this is a quote from some of the cases, and there's only probably like 20 to 30 cases since the 80s that actually talk about non-competes in Nebraska, but they're all the same. And in Nebraska, the Supreme Court has said, we will allow you to protect the goodwill that that employee generated on behalf of your company when they were employed with your company. And the way that we're gonna allow you to protect that goodwill is that you, as the, you can, as the employer, can prohibit that former employee from going out and soliciting customers that they, this is the tricky language that you have to have in the agreement to make it valid, actually did business and had personal contact with. If you don't have that language, that's probably not gonna be valid either. 
and Nebraska doesn't do any blue penciling. So let's say you have a perfectly valid non-solicitation of customers in your non-compete, but you also have a non-compete. The whole thing dies. Nebraska will kill the entire agreement. <coughs> and even if you have a severability clause, even if you say, you know what, Iowa law is going to apply, Nebraska is going to go, aha, but we don't follow the same public policy that Iowa does, so we're going to apply Nebraska law. And so this happens time and again. Jackson Lewis is a national law firm, and so a lot of times I'll have to give the bad news to one of our Florida clients that calls and says, hey, we got this client that's gone to work for a, a different company, a competitor, and we want to sue the pants off of them, and you go, okay, send me the non-compete. We'd love to sue the pants off these people. And then you get the non-compete, and you see it, and you go, but I'm sorry, you should have had me review it when you drafted it, because we're different in Nebraska. And different states have different laws. In Iowa, you can do any of that. You can have a non-compete. You can have a non-solicitation. There's not this sort of restrictions that you have in Nebraska. In South Dakota, there's an actual statute that talks to what you can and can't have in a non-compete agreement. So each state's going to be different. So if you have a client that has m multiple locations in multiple states, what's one takeaway that you can go bill them for when you're done with this? You can call them up and go, you know what? Let's do a non-compete agreement for you. And if you already have one, let me review it to make sure it's valid in each of the states in which you do business. Because what's what you can do to protect your business in Nebraska is not the same as Iowa. Okay, EEOC Trend Watch. So what's going on in 2017? Pregnancy discrimination, transgender. These are the cases that the EEOC is really keying in on this year. Pre-employment screening, so it's sort of the ban the box. Are you refusing to hire people because of their criminal records? Is that creating a disparate impact on some sort of protected uh, class of employees or potential employees? Severance agreements. If you have a severance agreement, it shouldn't say that you're waiving your right to file a charge. If you do, the EEOC will come get you. What you have to do is you say, you can still file a charge, but you just can't take any monetary relief after you file that charge if there's an investigation. Because the EEOC is taking the position that we as the EEOC always have the right to investigate. Uh, we, we have this statutory duty to investigate any claims of discrimination and harassment. And if you, as an employer, are trying to deprive us of that duty, then you're violating the law. And that severance agreement is no good. So make sure in your severance agreements you're not saying that they don't have the right to file a charge or waiving the right to file a charge. Same for uh, confidentiality clauses. That's sort of a big one for the EEOC right now, too. How restrictive are these clauses? Do you have any language that should exist? And real quick, I forgot to mention on the non-disclosure piece, if you have a non-disclosure agreement, make sure that it has the Defense of Trade Secrets Act language. So in 2016, the President signed, Congress passed something called the Defense of Tra Defend Trade Secrets Act, and it says if you have a non-disclosure that prohibits the disclosure of any confidential, proprietary, or trade secret information, that you have this little safe harbor paragraph that's in there. And if you don't have a safe harbor provision in there, it might violate the Defend Trade Secrets Act. So we went through and revised all of our non-disclosure agreements to insert this little paragraph. So do it, um, is what I'll say. So ban the box. In Nebraska, it's, we have ban the box in place for public employee employers, but not private employers. So you don't have to worry about that unless you represent public employers. And I have because I wasn't sure how much time we ha would have left, I have what I call the employment law grab bag. So what do we have? FMLA, ADA. 
this could be one day long or three day long session in itself. Um, basically, under the FMLA, what I see a lot of employers doing is you get 12 weeks of leave under the Family Medical Leave Act, okay? And so it's for an employee's serious health condition or the serious health condition of a family member that they can apply for and receive FMLA. So employers' big mistakes are they hear that an employee has cancer and they don't offer FMLA. Or worse yet, they give the employee FMLA, but after the 12-week period, the employee can't come back to work, and so what do they do? They just say, well, you're done, and they fire them because they can't come back to work. Well, once the FMLA is done, the ADA kicks in. And so the ADA says that you have to engage in the interactive process with the employee, an employee with a disability, which is a serious medical condition, which is almost anything nowadays. And you have to engage in that interactive process and you have to determine whether or not you can reasonably accommodate that employee based upon the restrictions that employee has. And what has the EEO said is a reasonable accommodation? Extended unpaid leave. So once that 12 weeks is up, if you have a employer that you represent or if an employee walks in your door and says, I was terminated on 12 weeks in one day, the EEOC is going to be interested in it because it's probably a policy that's in place and there's going to be systemic claim based upon the violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's probably going to, you're going to have a pretty much a slam dunk case to show that they violated the ADA by not engaging in their in interactive process and just by automatically terminating that employee. Have you seen much of the way of like, workers' comp claims yeah, that's, I didn't even want to touch on that. That's like the big Bermuda Triangle. No, you're right. It's the Bermuda Triangle. It's FMLA, ADA, and work comp. And that's what gives employers the biggest headaches is because you have someone that's filed for work comp that might have been out on short-term disability, long-term disability, maybe FMLA, and you're wondering when can they come back to work, right? And so what I usually do is have the employer engage in a, they have to be very patient and go through, through the process, but engage in this interactive process with the employee, which can't be emails, it can't be letters, it has to be actual face-to-face -face conversations or telephonic conversations to say, okay, what can you do? What restrictions do you have? How long are the restrictions gonna last? When's your next doctor's appointment? So they can really get a firm understanding of how long is this person gonna be out? What can and can't they do and for how long? Um, and then you can evaluate it and say, okay, is it another four weeks? Is it another six weeks? Is it indefinite? If it's indefinite, you can probably terminate. If it's not indefinite, it's just case by case, and it's this big gray area. So there's some states like Oklahoma that says you can't terminate while they have a work comp claim pending. We don't have that in Nebraska, <coughs> but it's always just good to check if you're in another jurisdiction um, and the employer wants to terminate someone and they say there's work comp, you go, oh, let me check and just make sure there's no statute that says that I can't terminate someone that has a work comp claim pending. Uh, common ADAAA because in 2009 the Americans with Disabilities Act was amended, so they call it the Americans with Disabilities Act Amendments Act, which is great, right? Um, the ADAAA. Um, so common ADA mistakes that I see are not not having a job description because you want to be able to say what does the employee have to do as the essential functions of their job? And if they're restricted or they have restrictions, does that prevent them from doing one or more of those essential functions? 
not documenting performance or conduct deficiencies, all of a sudden they come back from FMLA or they have an injury or they have a disability, and you go, well, um, they haven't been able to lift those boxes forever, and now they can't lift those boxes, but you know, it's something that has always existed, so we're gonna terminate them. Well, if you didn't have that documented before, you're probably not gonna wanna term them for it now. Not engaging in the interactive process, which we've touched on. Not considering reassignment or additional unpaid leave. That's probably the biggest from this area. And of course, making inappropriate written or verbal comments, which is gonna trigger regarded as. So the ADA not only protects people with disabilities, but people that would be regarded as having a disability. So if I just look like I'm disabled, which on some days I probably do, and I walk into Jackson Lewis and they're like, that Ken Wentz, he sure looks like he's all messed up and he has a disability, then I might be able to sue them for taking an adverse action against me for regarding me as having a disability. So even if you're healthy, the ADAAA may apply to you. FLSA, that's Fair Labor Standards Act, and I know we're hitting five o'clock. If you guys want the slides, I don't really want to go over unless you guys say, I think I have like two slides left. Uh, one. Do you guys want me to go over it real quick? Sure. Okay. So Fair Labor Standards Act is going to basically apply to how employers pay their employees. Um, these are the most common Fair Labor Standards Act employment claims that we see. A lot of these are going to be class action claims against your clients as employers or made by your clients against their employers. Misclassification, we've touched on that. Um, exempt means salaried, non-exempt means hourly. And so a lot of people are saying, well, that person, we're just gonna give them a salary and they like it until they're terminated. And then they go, you know what? I was always working at home and I should have been paid for that. And it's your job as the employer to have a record of how many hours they were working at home. And if you don't, then the only person that's gonna be able to come and testify as to that is the plaintiff and you know they're gonna love that. Off the clock work, if they go home and they're sending emails, if your assistant goes home at night um, in a law firm and all of a sudden you're getting a bunch of emails from him or her and you go, well, it's apparent that they're doing work. They're not supposed to be doing work off the clock. We have a policy against that. What can you do? You have to pay them for the off the clock work. I get a lot of employers that say, do I have to pay them for the off the clock work because I don't want to, I didn't authorize it. You say, yeah, you gotta pay them, but you can discipline them for the off-the-clock work for violating your policy. It never goes over that well because you go, well, you're disciplining them for working too hard. But um, yes, you can. And if you really want to cut down on that, that's really what you got to do. Meal and rest breaks. Um, there's a lot of claims out there that you get half an hour for your lunch break and they say, well, it wasn't an uh, uh, unrestricted or uh, a lunch hour that I was actually uh, off work for the entire 30-minute period or they didn't get their rest breaks. Not properly calculating overtime pay. If you're an hourly employee, it's usually time and a half, but if you have a question on how you should be calculating that overtime pay, because if you receive a bonus, you may have to put the bonus into the hourly rate to recalculate the hourly rate for the overtime. It's really complicated. Um, the DO, or the, um, yeah, the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division has a helpful guide on their website, but it's a good starting place. And then the other big one is independent contractors. Uh, are there, I mean, do you have clients, a client that comes in the door that says, hey, look, I do everything that Dave Summers does for the Omaha Bar Association, but uh, they call me an independent contractor, so I don't get benefits, I don't get the perks that come with being an employee, and I should, 
And so is there a, a clause of action that could be made because your, your client says, hey, I don't want any employees, I just want independent contractors. That's it, I hope it wasn't too basic for you guys.